Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the back half, the New Statesman's new-ish culture podcast. I'm Tom Gatti, I'm culture editor of the New Statesman. I'm Kate Mossman, I'm arts editor of the same publication. And hopefully you've got the idea by now, but if you're new to us, we are called the back half because we work on the back half of the magazine, which is where all the books and culture and arts materials are stored and content is produced and consumed and this podcast is a sort of supplementary tablet to that sort of random spin-off yeah random spin-off <laughs> so a... we say like oh this is all the stuff you'll find in the magazine the fact is it isn't sometimes it is <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it, it is. isn't it's, it's, it's a gamble we are going to be talking today about Judd Apatow the um, producer and director responsible for films such as The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up and Trainwreck who has returned back to his first love of stand-up comedy in a one-off Netflix special. We're going to be talking about A Christmas Carol, which Kate and I just went to see at the Old Vic, a new adaptation by Jack Thorne. And we have a particularly low-rent non-aversary for you today. So stay tuned. Kate, you probably better update us on Keith. Last week, um, Kate just briefly told us about the cat she's looking after and there have been developments, which I think we need to know about. Yes, the Savannah cat uh, with the character of the dog. So Keith became very ill two nights ago and I had to take him to the emergency vet in Dalston, Medivet, who were very good, uh, at three o'clock in the morning. And he was found to have a foreign body inside him. And there was a lot of debate as to what this could be. I looked around the house for shampoo bottle tops, all sorts of, you know, plastic packaging and things like that. Turned out to be a load of wood. <laughs> so he'd eaten lots of sticks in the manner of a dog. Um, and they became stuck in his intestine and they pulled out a three inch piece of wood wow. from his intestine. So he had a big operation yesterday. And these are official cat treats they're basically like twigs that are covered in catnip and you can buy them. Are they designed to be eaten or just sort of gnawed well, on? that's the problem, isn't it? So the humans say, here's this thing to do what you want with and the cat thinks I'm going to eat it. And the human goes, oh, I didn't mean for you to eat it. I just made it, you know. So this is the problem. So hopefully they'll be taken off sale. But he's, he's recovering. He's campaign. He's... he's still in the hospital with one of those lampshades around his head mm. and a drip. He's got a tiny drip on his, on his paw. But um, yeah, I think he's a bit of a sociopath, so I don't think he's necessarily upset by it it's just you know it sounds more um i mean i had to do some child proofing in in my house for my 
two children who are two and four, but the cat sounds riskier. Yeah, I, I wasn't sort of expecting medical emergencies no. in a short, with your, with your brother on holiday on the other side of the world, but you know, it all worked out. <laughs> Poor old Keith. Well, let's wish Keith a, a speedy recovery. How long will he have to wear the lampshade for? Um, maybe for the rest of his life. <laughs> Fantastic, because there is nothing funnier than a dog or a cat in one of those lampshade things. They're just intrinsically hilarious. So, Kate, we immersed ourselves in Christmas spirit on Monday night when we went to see a new adaptation of A Christmas Carol at the at the Old Vic. This is adapted by Jack Thorne, who's responsible for the phenomenally successful Harry Potter play, which we're, of course, massive Harry Potter fans. So we've, um, <laughs> I've seen, how many times have you seen it now? 14. I've, I've seen it actually um, 23 times. Wow. It's incredible, yeah. I'm getting a season ticket for my birthday. You can you can do that, can't you? Yeah, you can, you can just go and ticket. see it once. Actually, I used to work selling tickets for Mamma Mia in the West End, and there was one man who did come and see it every week. Really? And he wore a kilt, and he sat in A15 <laughs> in the front row. We're kidding. We, we know nothing about Harry Potter. We actually hate Harry Potter. But, but that doesn't detract from Jack Thorne, who actually we profiled in the magazine earlier this year. Um, who did that for us? Andrew Dixon did a, did a lovely profile of Jack Thorne. One thing he's very, very good at is adaptation. So he's done this new adaptation of Dickens's Christmas story. And the was, old... it, was it Jack Thorne who had the poster of Tony Blair on his wall? It was, yeah. yeah. yeah as a reminder of the loss of hope. Wasn't yeah, it? <laughs> it, was, it was a beautifully poignant part of that interview, well remembered. But the other poignant part of it was that he's producing, I mean, he's writing his own plays as well. He's producing all these incredibly successful adaptations. And he's, he was slightly sad that he feels he hadn't, hasn't written his own sort of big play yet. But this is more than enough compensation for that. Kate, the theatre looks quite different when you go in, doesn't mm. it? Yeah. This is an extremely noisy, chaotic production. It's quite irresistible in a way. There's a big cruciform stage, like a runway, like something that Bono would be on, <laughs> going down the middle of the theatre and the seats are all round. And 50 people arrived, you know, who were late a few minutes into it. And it didn't matter, really, no. because it kind of comes in from the sides. It starts with, you know, bizarre people in Victorian dress ringing handbells and giving out mince pies and stuff. And then the whole thing sort of settles into a play. So it's very cleverly done. It also has this this incredible sort of 10 minutes of like pure pantomime at the end, which features, you know, the moment when Scrooge is sort of saying, OK, I'm going to make the best Christmas for everybody. There's actually a turkey on a zip wire. And my favourite thing, individual Brussels sprouts on individual parachutes coming down. From that is a completely wonderful moment. The thing I liked about the turkey on a zip wire is it's a sort of big like papier mache turkey like it is a panto turkey yeah isn't it? it's, it's a stupid like turkey that couldn't have, happen they haven't done some sort of uh you know inventive take on making a turkey out of like bits of stage props it's no, just like a big sort just of a massive turkey shiny. That, that chases reese siffens who plays scrooge along the along the stage it's almost a with nailish scrooge isn't he he's he's kind of young wiry chaotic hair all over the place and quite divorced from reese as a character as you know him in in other things so you don't you're not looking at him thinking oh that's a celebrity that's what I loved about it. You don't feel like he's been airdropped into it. He feels he feels brilliantly cast. And um, I was going to say he's like a Ralph Steadman uh, mm. caricature, which is exactly right for Withnail, because of course that aesthetic is is the same, spindly, yeah. shadowy, um, and quite quite unpleasant at the beginning, isn't he? I mean, he's not frightened by Marley's ghost because he's just an asshole, and he wouldn't be frightened by a ghost. That's the feeling you get from it. And then towards the end, he's he he's sort of manic 
you know, crazy professor sort of scratching his face with enthusiasm when he decides he's going to adopt Christmas after all. He sort of has all these sort of wordless shouts and kind of like, ha and ho 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 and But uh, then weirdly at the end, when they do their kind of regular charity drive, he gets out, Reesifans gets out some like, cards from his pocket and reads at the end of this play we're going to be asking for your money for the local charity <laughs> it's like hang on how come you can't memorize just a few lines for mm. the charity drive when you've just done like two hours of being scrooge but that's quite amusing i know he's actually um i went to look back at the play and there was one line i thought that kind of gave a clue to his character which is scrooge acted like a man out of his wits his heart and soul were in the scene he underwent the strangest agitation mm. which which kind of I don't know whether they use that as a key, but Ifans certainly seem to like pick up on that. Yeah, that you idea. get that. You lose that in a lot of the other productions because it's kind of a roly-poly old Santa by the mm, end, isn't mm. it? I mean, it's it's a very strange phenomenon this this work because like how many other things apart from say Shakespeare plays do we watch so regularly in different incarnations that you actually know every single line of the the story and there are whole chunks of it that you find boring and you go and make a cup of tea while they're on you know mm. like sort of in, in in Hamlet I don't like the play within a play because it just bores me to tears so mm. I always go off to the toilet and that bit and then this it's always like the ghost of Christmas present that's a bit boring compared to the ghost of Christmas past yeah. and future yeah. what about you um, well, no, I think I think you're right. And um, at one point that Michelle Faber does a little essay in the introduction and he just says, like, there aren't many of these really sort of key, iconic, sort of almost mythic characters beyond, you know, you have to go back to sort of Cain and Abel and then maybe Shakespeare created some with kind of Shylock and Romeo and Juliet. But to have created something as recently as the 19th century that is kind of so deeply embedded in our psyche is quite impressive. I agree. I think the past is the most exciting bit of this play. There's been a lot of talk recently because I think it's the 25th anniversary of the Muppet Christmas Carol and how brilliant that is. But I think this, this story does seem to be able to survive just multiple interpretations and, and being bent in all sorts of different directions. Yeah, there's a, there's a um, you know, the classic, are there not workhouses? Mm. I mean, how different is that from the debate about don't give money to beggars directly? I'm putting, I'm giving a sort of direct debit to shelter every month or something. So that hasn't changed that idea that, well, I'm supporting the infrastructure of the, the people who look after the poor, so I'm not going to give it to the, the guy on the street. I mean, one of our big viral hits this year was a a piece entitled Why You Should Give Regularly and Unconditionally to Beggars. So yes, that's still going yeah. on. Yeah, you're absolutely um, right. But I also, I mean, there's a fantastic story behind the, the writing of this, which is, I didn't know, which was that he was going to write a, a sort of a pamphlet, a very angry pamphlet. He went to visit one of the ragged schools. And he was planning a pamphlet that was tentatively titled An Appeal to the People of England on Behalf of the Poor Man's Child. And this was kind of around, this is uh, 1843. This is sort of, maybe springtime, who was going to do this, comes around to October and his publisher tells him, look, you've got to get your act together. You're not selling so many chuzzle wits as you mm. were. I'm going to have to drop your salary by 50 quid a month. And he says, he goes to, um, to Manchester and he says, well, you know that pamphlet I was going to write? <laughs> he says, um, I'm going to do you something much better. It's going, you know, you're going to feel the full force. What is it? Here it is, a direct quote. You will certainly feel that a sledgehammer has come down 20 times the force, 20 times the force I could exert by following out my first idea. And of course, his idea is to write a sort of a best-selling book that can basically top up his income as well as solve the problem of, you know, not understanding the, 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 the plight of poor children in London. Um, so he writes this book in six weeks and he walks around London for up to 20 miles a night while he's working the story out in his head. 
And it's a, a massive hit and it's sold out by Christmas Eve. So it was kind of, he did it for himself as well as for the for the charitable cause. It's really interesting. And it immediately became a, um, a kind of stage hit as well. I think two months after it first appeared in print, there were eight different versions on the London stage. I'm not quite sure it happened, how, it, how it worked. I think copyright was a bit dodgy in those days because I, I remember reading with some of Dickens' serialisations, the stage versions would start being put on before the story had actually finished. So they made up different endings to like wow. Oliver Twist or something. <laughs> like choose your own ending uh, yeah, versions. Yeah, yeah. a franchise, uh, yeah. basically. The money aspect is really interesting. And Dickens was, um, although he was phenomenally successful, he had a huge amount of expenses. He had a family to support and he sort of lived hand to mouth. So like you were saying, you know, he, he needed his, his books to, to make money. One of the things Jack Thorne does in this adaptation is, you know, we were sitting there watching this and we were thinking, hmm, I don't really remember Scrooge's father having such a big role in this story. And I went, of course, he doesn't. So Jack Thorne completely, from a paragraph in the original text, Thorne builds in Scrooge's relationship with his father, makes his father really in the mould of Dickens' own father, who was sent to Marshalsea Debtors' Prison, when Dickens was a small boy, and this is very famous, but Dickens was, was then, at age 12, was sent out to work in a blacking factory, pasting labels on bottles, I think that's what he did, which was the kind of defining traumatic incident in his life and is, is partly what kind of spurred his huge interest in child welfare later on. But Thorne takes that and gives it a bit of a more modern Freudian spin, as Mark Lawson says in our review in, in the Christmas issue of the magazine. You could sort of say, mm, that's a bit naff to kind of, you know, psychoanalyze it. But actually, I think it really works and it really strengthens it. He does it with quite a light touch. But what you get really is Scrooge is not so much driven by avarice in this production, but by fear of debt. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Martin Amis says in his memoir, talks about this thing called tramp dread, which is a phrase I always love, which is like, as a young man, I don't know why it has to be a man, but I guess because it's Martin Amis writing it. But, um, <laughs> you know, him and Christopher Hitchens, as, as men in their 20s, talked about this thing of like, okay, they were starting to do okay. But there was this real fear. They had this genuine fear that if they sort of just dropped off a little bit down the ladder, they might go all the way down. That would be it, yeah. yeah. So it's not actually avarice that is that is driving him. Mm. And he's, he's sort of, that's, that explains why he doesn't spend any money. So mm. it's, and it also explains why he leaves Belle and says that he will come back and get her when he's made. He's, it's kind of these investments that he's making that are falling through. It's the sort of the waiting in his life and the and the saving that's the problem. And there's also this Freudian element, which which Thorne has brought out, which I thought was quite, quite a lot of almost psychoanalytical references there's this bit when the ghost of christmas pass says to him these are the bricks that built you and he says no these are the bricks that you chose to inflict torture and that just made me think of therapists saying, yeah. like it was this it was what your father did to you in childhood that's caused this and it's like no no you're just saying that you know so. and but of course it is sort of <laughs> but the, play, the play does prove it no you're absolutely right one other thing that thorne brings to this is that in his version scrooge resists the ghost much more than the original in the original it's actually quite heavily signposted from the very beginning the ghosts say now do you see this and scrooge says oh yes i wish from from the very beginning whereas um Siffins is scrooge kind of 
is in denial, basically, and is gradually worn down. And the ghosts are really weird. They're just three women with kind of increasingly large prams. So yeah. I don't know what kind of uh, Freudian reference that is. Well, as well. I, I was puzzled by that. But then I saw a review that um, said that the decision to make these them these kind of older women meant that they were chivying Scrooge rather than really forcing him to confront these things. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Which I, I think kind of, that, that sort of made sense to me. I'll tell you what really worked for me with this production is that it's the only one I've ever seen where Tiny Tim is not really, really irritating. Yes, Tiny Tim. Um, there's four different Tiny Tims. They're all young actors with disabilities. We saw Lenny Rush and he was... He just played it so beautifully. Just extremely confident, poetic, cheeky sort of kid yeah. rather than the wet, whimpering kind of, God bless us, everyone. Yeah. Thing, so. Again, Thorne writes in a scene with Scrooge directly confronting Tiny Tim. And I mean, this, this is the point in the play where I just, I was attempting to kind of maintain some kind of carapace of cynicism and it just was <laughs> impossible it was impossible to keep it up I just completely melted oh, speaking of which how about the bit where he confronts his young self and he bursts into tears and goes I don't want him to be me yes I mean everyone in the audience yeah. was just like I mean it did have that kind of um we were thinking that it was very hard to resist this this production and I genuinely thought for a moment when Scrooge did his whole character conversion at the end I thought just imagine if Trump got up on Christmas Day and decided to be nice. It went through my head and it was a serious thought, so I'm afraid that's the power of this. We can but dream. Christmas Carol at the Old Vic runs until 20th of January. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.
just released on Netflix this week is a special. Everything's a special, isn't it? I don't, I don't really know why it's a special. I guess because it's a, it's a one-off. It's a special special. That's what my daughter calls little things that she collects that have no name. Special specials. Special special. Yeah. A precious. A precious, exactly. My precious. Judd Apatow, 25 years after he quit stand-up comedy, has decided to do it again. And because he's Judd Apatow, he doesn't just sort of turn up at a random little club and do some poorly received comedy. He gets Netflix to do a special, uh, a special special. (laughs) To be fair, I think he has been kind of building up to this over the past uh, year and a half or so. Kate, is he funny? I still think that stand-up is the worst, literally the worst job in the world. And I don't know why anybody would do it. I feel like it's, it's kind of about being in control but it's about knowing that you could possibly always lose control at any minute. Mm. And I'm just, I'm always been fascinated by people getting drawn to it and particularly somebody going back when they don't need to like this. I mean, why? Because your wife used to do a lot of stand-up, didn't she? She did, yeah. What, what was I it that she liked about I met it? Her. Gosh, I don't know. I, I think the rush when you get the full attention of an audience and the full laughter of an audience yeah. is brilliant. You know, from from doing the odd bits of, theatre at school and university I remember that you know if you if you're in a funny play and the audience are laughing it's great it's a real it's a real thrill and actually that's something that Judd doesn't get as being behind the scenes yes so exactly. all his stars get that you know that adulation all the time and he doesn't he doesn't I mean there's a kind of a running thread through this thing where he's following um Obama around to try and get a, a photograph of Obama laughing at one of his jokes and that's kind yeah. of one of the, the gags in it but yeah it's funny to think that you could be creating all this comedy and actually be quite divorced from the idea of immediately making people laugh mm. in your life he's he's making all the money <laughs> but as he says he wants to do this he's, he thought he'd like to try something that with lower salary and lower self-esteem <laughs> um which speaks to your idea that it's really it is really the worst job in the world but yeah i mean i'm sure after that many years of, of being behind the camera he just wants he just wants a place in the spotlight so he talks about this in the show but he started out with adam sandler they were roommates first of all his his parents divorced when he was 12 which is something he uses for comic material in the show um, and that was when he he got a kind of summer job working in a stand-up club discovered stand-up comedy eventually got in with adam sandler and people like jim carrey started doing gigging and then realized that actually he was better at writing the jokes there's one nice insight into his early career where him and i forget whether it's him and adam sandler or him and jim carrey but they they pitch ideas to jim henson you know the the muppet man so they're very excited about this and he gets his feedback which is jim henson doesn't want to hire him but he likes his ideas and he wants to buy his ideas and he says okay that's that's cool but why doesn't he want to hire me and he says jim henson thinks you lack warmth (laughs) (laughs) that's gonna scar you isn't it (laughs) And then after that, so he stopped the stand-up after that and he um, he had to go and do a toast for Mel Brooks one night as well. And that was another of his kind of these important moments in his um, loss of love for stand-up because he didn't prepare a proper speech. Mm. And he goes to this night and you've got Billy Crystal roasting him and then singing a song about him and stuff. And he's literally just sitting there thinking, I can't do this, I can't do this. And he claims that he walked out. His daughter just said, Let, let's get out of here. I think those parts are partly what make the show interesting but they're not very good material for comedy so the fact is he does rely quite a lot on this on being the famous Judd Apatow so we've got you know meeting Obama we've got 
even the kind of self-deprecatory Mel Brooks thing is still like, I'm at all these award ceremonies uh, being invited to throw a pitch for the New York Mets. The, yeah, the, the, the quality of the observational comedy is quite low. He talks about, oh, getting picked last in gym class. So, you know, money doesn't make you happy. Trump is bad. What are you guys watching on Netflix? Which yeah. is one of the weirdest ones. <laughs> Sometimes you can see the cogs in his brain. It's like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm going to run out of material. But yeah, it is something about the, I suppose the, the shtick is the self-deprecation and that's that's where it kind of works. I mean, what, what really worked for you to comedy-wise, do you I, think? Well, I think the, you know, when he plays to his strengths, which is what he knows from his movies, I mean, his movies are all about relationships. And so the stuff about sex was very funny, <laughs> like sex from a, from a man's point of view. Sex being shit for men, basically. Yeah, sex being shit for men, which I get, we have a lot of sex from a man's point of view, but just sex being constantly terrible for men is quite, a, it was quite a good reversal. So that was good. The stuff about his daughters was <laughs> quite edgy in yeah. a way because he paints them as being quite monstrous. Yeah. Um, uh, and he gives them these sort of little kind of, horrible voices like the crabby, little crabby voices and they're on Instagram and they're kind of um, <laughs> and one of them's like one of them's got a thing about Asian babies <laughs> and he says you know don't don't you think that's a little bit racist more and she goes it's not racist if you love it and you think he must have cleared this stuff with these daughters who are teenagers or college age or something first but they become the they're the butt for jokes rather than his wife often it's like the wife or the, the mother-in-law and yeah. classic kind of comedy parlance but yeah it's unusual to home right in on your teenage daughters and one of them like used to have a habit as a kid of walking around making her vagina talk as a little character <laughs> Yeah, you wonder what conversations went on before this. But the I was watching, um, last night I watched a bit of, on Netflix, other streaming services are available, I watched a little bit of This Is 40, which is his sort of semi-sequel to Knocked Up. I mean, different characters, but kind of a vision of middle-aged family life. And both his daughters are in it. Ah, yeah. yeah. And um, they kind of play similar characters, yeah. actually. The mother's played by his wife, Leslie Mann. And the mother's trying to get them, she's put in a new rule that they can only use their electronic devices between 8 and 8.30. <laughs> and they're like, what the hell? You can't take away our Wi-Fi. And she's like, um, well, why don't you go outside and build a fort? Nobody builds forts. <laughs> um, and um, so I think these, these characters have obviously been kind of in long-term yes. gestation. I like the bit, the discussion of why he's never going to be one of those dads that can smoke weed with his daughters. And he says, because um, he knows what he would say, he would suddenly start saying, I made you. You used to live in my balls. <laughs> You used to live inside me with thousands of other brothers and sisters. It's just like, okay, yeah, stay off the stuff. He's hugely influential in movies now, both as a, as a director. I mentioned 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, Funny People, Trainwreck, a producer, both Anchorman films, Bridesmaids, recently The Big Sick. Loads of those Will Ferrell films like Talladega Nights and stuff are, are produced by Apatow. And you can start to see an Apatow aesthetic, even in the films that he's less involved with, which involves a predilection for being about half an hour too long. Lots of great comedy in the first half and then a kind of another equally long second or third act with uh, lots of plot, lots of resolution and usually this slightly conservative, either someone getting married or a restoration of family values or a, a people coming together with this kind of sentimental sheen over the edge of it he offers this little defense of uh, knowing defense of his movies being too long and he says um 
And when people ask him, tell him that his movie's too long, he's like, haven't you seen Harry Potter? It's three hours long. The longer it is, the more you care about the characters. (laughs) Yeah. There's also something in his um, stuff that I've not particularly liked in the last few years, which is that sense of slightly improvised comedy, the sort of Seth Rogen, Jason Bateman kind of moments, which go on for too long. Yeah. And you feel it's the classic thing, isn't it? It was funny to you on set, but it may not translate. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's that kind of leave the tape to roll approach. And, you know, the characters are in a situation and he'll just allow them to roll around in that situation for ages. And they must take ages to edit these films. But even when they've kind of got down to their favourite bits, it still has that air of something that just... It goes slack. Mm, and actually, the funny thing is, from his stand-up, there's nothing improvised about this. No. It's very, very set. Yeah. And, I mean, one thing I thought was interesting, I didn't realise that he he wrote some of the jokes for Obama's stand-up. Yes, so yeah. the, the White House Correspondents Association dinner, the one where you have to stand up and make loads of gags. 2011, the very night that Obama had authorised the invasion of Bin Laden's compound, he was up doing this speech and actually dissing Trump within it so what, what an amazing sort of heroic night for Obama and apparently Apatow wrote some of those gags although I can't find out exactly which one well he claims that it was his idea to diss Trump ah which you know obviously in a kind of butterfly effect way may have had a pretty seismic because it was that which know, was something to the effect of yeah um about the birth certificate well, well, debate Trump Trump had been haranguing Obama with this kind of mad birther conspiracy theory so when Trump was at this dinner, Obama picked on him and Apatow basically implied that that was his idea. And he says finally he can get back to focusing on the issues that matter, like did we fake the moon landing, what happened in Roswell and where are Biggie and Tupac? Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> Apatow concludes that he helped to kill Bin Laden. Yeah. Judd Apatow, The Return is on Netflix now. So Kate, in... December 1993. So how many years ago is that? We always have to get out of calculator. Oh, yeah. Um, four, four, 14, I nearly said. <laughs> 24. 20, if it's not 14, it's 24. 24 years ago, our Christmas number one was Mr. Blobby, a.k.a. the Mr. Blobby song. I mean, you can't help but think that possibly the seeds of Brexit were sown with Mr. Blobby in 1993. I mean, we talk about the centuries of the British Empire and all the kind of colonialist wrongs and the raping and pillaging, but it's harder to get a deeper Mm. sense of national shame than when considering the the personage of Mr Blobby. Yeah, Blobby actually occasioned think pieces in the New York Times, musing about why he was popular in, in Britain. He was a loathed character. He was created, of course, first as a kind of generic kids' TV character for a skit. Yes, so like a fake TV show. Yeah. And maybe that's why he has no redeeming features whatsoever. Which I guess in a way that's justifiable. Like, it, you know, if you were going to create a kind of, I mean, maybe satire is a too high flown word, but if you're going to create a kind of composite of a slightly idiotic kid's character, you might come up with something like that. Yeah, a really shit one with no sense of humour and an electric voice and who only says i mean what's what was his thing he ba- he only said blobby he said blobby blobby yeah. blobby yeah. he was actually played by a man called barry killaby who'd been in the uh, monocle mutineer the famous alan bleasdale drama about conscientious objection a shakespearean actor 
I looked Killaby up on Facebook to see where he is now. And there's actually a page registered to Barry Killaby, but it's just a picture of Mr. Blobby. And it said, um, 1995 left job at the BBC. And then it says 2013 in a complicated relationship. Oh my God. There's a story there. There's a story there. I think he's got 10 friends on Facebook. There were three theme parks. Oh, yes. All of which failed. Um, One of them was in in Lowestoft, within Pleasurewood Hills, which was my local theme park growing up. There was another one in Cricket St. Thomas in Somerset, which opened in July 1994 and included a a blobby house named Dunblobbin and a dark ride based around various other children's TV characters, which had him in it too. I mean, it's sort of, was this pre-Teletubbies? I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah. So, you know, the, the think pieces were talking about the fact that this is, this is, uh, this is it for British culture. Mm. It's over. Mm. Um, and obviously that debate is still going on today in terms of the dumbing down of our cultural output. Mm. Um, interestingly, this is before the internet, so we started early. What would Bobby have done with the internet? <laughs> Let's put him back in his box and never, ever open it again. Thank you for downloading this episode of The Back Half. Uh, I've been Tom Gatti. I've been Kate Mossman. And we've been edited by Caroline Crampton. Do get in touch on Twitter. I'm at Tom underscore Gatti or at NS underscore podcasts. I think there's an underscore in there. Stick one in, see what happens. Get in touch if you've got any non-aversary suggestions. Rate us on the iTunes podcast thing if you get a chance. And we, what will we leave them with this week? We're not going to break with tradition. No. We will leave you with a fantastic track called Godspeed by soon-to-be world-beating prog band from Japan, Pistol Jazz. Godspeed and God bless us, everyone. <laughs>